This is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And this is Adam Rodman, also a general internist at BIDMC. And this is Dr. Hannah Robertson, a resident at BIDMC. This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, I'm super excited to delve into pulmonary hypertension and unpack what the echo can tell us about pulmonary hypertension, also known as pH. Oh man, Hannah, I love this so much because sometimes I feel like, I don't know, 50% of the echoes that I order come back with a mention of some sort of mild to moderate pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, I 100% echo that feeling, Adam, pun intended. (laughs) But in all seriousness, sometimes I feel like it can be easy to underappreciate these findings. A patient of mine yesterday told me her exact words were, I would rather feel pain than not being able to breathe this much. And I mean, I just listened to her and felt a fire of motivation inside of me for us to try to do better by these patients. And so there's the suffering, there's the human component of it. That's Dr. Anjali Vaidya, a cardiologist and co-director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Temple University Hospital, and she's going to help us all do better by these patients. All right, let's get into the pearls we're going to be covering in this episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, interpreting the pulmonary artery systolic pressure on echo. All right. How reliable is the pulmonary artery systolic pressure, or PASP, on the echo? And what should you be trending over time on the echo? Pearl 2, confounding clinical scenarios. What are some acute clinical scenarios that might affect the PASP on the echo? Pearl three, physiologic framework for pulmonary hypertension. What are the three pathophysiologic insults that can cause increased pulmonary artery pressures? Pearl four, signs of high left-sided filling pressures. What can you look for on the echo to suggest diastolic dysfunction? Pearl 5, elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. What are the best practices in evaluating for causes for increased pulmonary vascular resistance? I think that we have all been taught to look at the PA systolic pressure or the RV systolic pressure estimation on echo um, as the sort of initial clue or diagnosis for pulmonary hypertension. And and that's never going to go away. And it's so incredibly valuable. But I have learned over the course of many years now, it is also the least specific. That's a good point. But what exactly is that PASP an estimation of? It's an estimation. It's not an absolute direct measurement of a number. And There's some very wonderful physics and math that goes behind it using Doppler with the modified Bernoulli equation. Ah, interesting. So the PASP is derived from an equation? 
it's not someone sitting in a dark room measuring the diameter of those pulmonary arteries? No. So actually that number, the PASP, or what we sometimes call the RVSP, right ventricular systolic pressure, is derived from actually looking at the tricuspid regurgitant jet velocity. So essentially looking for tricuspid regurgitation and then inputting that into this modified Bernoulli equation. But inherent in that equation and that technique are potential areas for error, um, including the angle with which we're measuring the velocity relative to the Doppler probe, including the completeness of the tricuspid regurgitation jet. And so when all of those things are, are used together in one equation, there is certainly potential for error. The other thing that can cloud the picture is that in a lot of patients with interstitial lung disease or COPD can have really difficult anatomy, and it can be really hard to get a good echo window. Yeah, I can think of so many times you get an echo report back and it says, couldn't estimate the PASP. And that doesn't mean that they don't have high pulmonary artery pressures. It just means it couldn't be estimated. This is really interesting to me because most people, really referring to myself here, you know, the the echo readings (laughs) seem like they're scientific proof. And I just accept them without question, but how skeptical should I actually be about these numbers? And this has been shown in data for many years, where the accuracy of Doppler echo in the hemodynamic assessment of pulmonary hypertension can be off by over 10 millimeters of mercury in up to half of patients that are getting an echocardiogram. Um, It's been shown in studies where actually echo and cath were done within an hour, so really no change in in physiology and, and underlying condition. And that error can happen as an overestimation or an underestimation with a very similar frequency. Wow. Now that is humbling, but a good reminder that no test is perfect. But when I looked into it, the estimated PASP is actually not so bad compared to a right heart cath, which is the gold standard for measuring this value. Yeah, at this point, there are multiple studies showing moderate correlation between the PASP and right heart catheterization numbers. Yeah, but maybe more importantly, though, once pulmonary artery pressures are high, it's high. And maybe this error doesn't even make that much of a difference. I consider the PASP estimation on ECHO to often represent what I think of as like t-shirt sizes, like small, medium, large. Like we're not specific here. It's just how big is it? And there's no great consensus on what is mild versus moderate versus severe. Exactly. And what was a new teaching point for me is that it's really not that helpful to trend the PASP on the echo. And so I have learned to tell the patients this in advance because we love our patients and they will, of course, come back to me and say, okay, doc, what was my pressure on this echo? What was my, how am I doing? What was the pressure on the echo? And then they look at you like you're insane when the honest answer is it doesn't matter. And it's very hard for them and and us initially even to accept and recognize that the pressure estimation is not the marker of the disease uh, phenotype or characterizing it, nor is it the marker of response to treatment. Guys, I got to say, I am a huge fan of trending things like the internist in me. So it is hard for me not to read into changes of those pulmonary artery pressures too much. Well, Shreya... It turns out you're not the only person who loves trending. One thing we learned from Dr. Noah Schoenberg, a pulmonologist here at BIDMC, is that it's really important in these patients to trend the RV size and function. I use the 
echocardiographic description of RV function as a much more um, detailed description of what's going on with the pulmonary circulation and the underlying pathophysiology. Over time, progressive dilatation is very concerning, just like progressive dilatation on the left side is very concerning. It bespeaks an RV that is failing to compensate for the pressures it is dealing with. Okay, so what I'm getting here is the PASP may be an initial signal of something going on, but what we should really be tracking over time is how the RV is handling that high PA pressure. Yeah, like seeing if there's RV hypertrophy, is the right atrium enlarged? Are those pressures high enough to open up a PFO? Certainly, as the RV dilates, if it fails, you can also see decreased function. It becomes more hypokinetic, the RV EF falls, and you know that sort of implies that your cardiac output is likely also dropping as well. Yeah, and once the RV starts to fail and can't generate that squeeze, the PASP counterintuitively actually goes down. Yeah. That reminds me, I had a patient once who had really severe pulmonary hypertension and her repeat echo comes back and the PSP actually is almost normal. And I remember like scratching my head being like, oh, did we just improve her all of a sudden? Uh, But no, her RV dysfunction actually just got worse. I think that's a really prescient lesson, Treya, because yes, numbers are numbers, but a lot of things can throw them off. And at the end of the day, it's how the person in front of you is doing. So I'm going to try to recap our takeaway here. The PASP on the echo is calculated based on the tricuspid regurgitant velocity, and at best, it's an estimate. So the PASP kind of gives us a ballpark of how the pressures are, but the most important thing in these patients is to see how the right side of the heart is actually handling those elevated pressures. In my personal experience, we often look at the PASP number, but then we miss the boat on taking into account what else is going on with these patients and how that might be impacting the number that we're seeing. You know, pulmonary processes and hypoxia alone can lead to pulmonary vasoconstriction. And so I will often encourage folks not to necessarily discount the presence of pulmonary hypertension if it's found in that clinical context, but to just recognize the potential impact. Even if they're not hypoxemic, something like significant atelectasis or a large compressive effusion or a pneumothorax, all of these can cause elevated pulmonary pressures simply because you're losing some vasculature. Okay, wait. So actually walk me through how that makes the pulmonary pressures go up. You can actually have loss of vascular bed because part of the lung is collapsed there, and so you just aren't able to push blood through those areas. Um, The other relates to pulmonary autoregulation. When an area is not ventilating, the blood vessels constrict. And when you have constriction of those blood vessels, it is harder for blood to flow through them. You have increased pulmonary vascular resistance. So whether it is due to uh, a pneumothorax causing partial collapse of the lung, so that lung isn't ventilating, or whether it's a portal effusion having the same effect, or even a pneumonia where that lung isn't aerated well, Um, the blood vessels will constrict and it is um, shunting blood elsewhere that ideally is better ventilated, but now it is harder for blood to flow and the pulmonary vascular resistance goes up. Ha. So basically any big acute respiratory process can make those pulmonary pressures go up. What else can do it? Anemia can lead to changes in cardiopulmonary physiology too, in terms of affecting stroke volume and cardiac output. And so if a patient is acutely anemic, that's not the time to interpret their PASP estimation on the echocardiogram because they're probably slightly 
high in a high output state, which can also contribute to pulmonary hypertension. But that said, a few times a year, a new pulmonary hypertension referral to me is anemia. And that's all it is. That's so crazy, but it does make a lot of sense that an acute drop in hemoglobin can put people in a high cardiac output state and then really mess up that PASP estimate. Yeah. It makes me also think about all the patients that we have who are in heart failure, volume overloaded. We often get echoes on them. How much can we trust those PASPs? Volume status can have some effect. Um, It doesn't generally overall impact right heart function, but it can certainly have a significant impact on the degree of valvular regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation. And so volume status and hypoxia can be important parameters that can affect the interpretation. There's some nuance here. It's not that volume overload itself makes the PASP artificially elevated. If you're overloaded and you also have tricuspid regurgitation, especially moderate to severe TR, the PASP will be artificially high. Why? Well, if you'll remember, we actually used the tricuspid regurgitation jet to estimate the PASP in the first place. If someone is overloaded without significant degrees of TR, the PASP will not be as impacted. Nice. Uh, That was some great spaced repetition, Adam, on how the tricuspid is actually used to calculate the pulmonary systolic pressure. So props. So with that, why don't we recap uh, the times that we should interpret the pulmonary artery pressures with a bit of a grain of salt. So that's going to be in patients with one, acute respiratory illnesses, profound acute anemia, and lastly, volume overload. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. I can think of so many examples of being on the inpatient side of things when I get a patient's echo back, an echo that I ordered, and it shows a pulmonary (laughs) artery systolic pressure of 40 or so. But, you know, they presented with something, I got the echo, and they get better. And that's that. What do I do with that number? Yeah, Adam, I totally agree. And then I've definitely seen this as a transitional issue when I'm seeing patients in clinic also. Maybe we repeat the echo if we didn't think they were in some steady state physiology and the PASP is still high. So now that we know that the PASP is more or less just a signal, we then still have to figure out what's actually going on. The underlying hemodynamics of pulmonary hypertension is always going to be one of three things. And so I start with that concept because when the pressure estimation is high on echo or measured in the cath lab, the real question for us as the physician is which of those three things is the cause 
and the culprit of the pressure being high. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, guys. One of three things? I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the five different WHO groups were hammered into my head with pulmonary hypertension. Hey, hey, okay, so hear her out. I actually found this way of thinking of pulmonary hypertension way more intuitive. And it's a good starting point to figure out what kind of physiology our patient might have. So always think physiology first and then go to the who groups second. So physiology first, is it high flow? Is it high left atrial pressure or is it high resistance? Okay, so to repeat those three buckets, it sounds like all elevated pulmonary pressures are either due to one, a high flow state through that pulmonary system, two, high side left filling pressures backing up into the pulmonary system, or three, high vascular resistance within that pulmonary system. So to cement those three pathophys insults, Dr. Schoenberg actually uses a garden hose analogy. He uses this both for teaching and to explain it to patients. Ultimately, pulmonary hypertension is a little bit like trying to water your garden with a garden hose hooked up to a spigot on a house. High flow through the hose will raise the pressure. Having a nozzle on the end causing water to back up will raise the pressure. And having a kink in the hose or a constriction will raise the pressure. But all of those represent different kinds of pulmonary hypertension and different pathophysiologies. Great. I think I'm getting it. But to really sink it in, why don't we break down the three pathophys buckets a bit more? So in bucket number one, we think of things that alter the pulmonary vascular bed itself and increase resistance. Yeah, so back to that hose analogy, I guess these would be different kinks or constrictions within that hose to raise the pressure. So things like pulmonary arterial hypertension in WHO group one, or all the chronic lung diseases in WHO group three, or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension or CTEF that's in WHO group four. All these link back to some kind of change in the pulmonary vascular bed and increase of resistance within that pulmonary system. So then the next physiologic bucket is the elevated left-sided filling pressures. So basically, this is pulmonary hypertension related to left-sided heart disease. This is the nozzle at the end of the hose. The overwhelmingly common majority cause is going to be the left-sided filling pressures that are high. All right. Uh, Then the third and last pathophys insult that can cause high pulmonary pressures is going to be increased flow. So this is turning up the nozzle of that hose. Sounds like high cardiac output states can do it. And I know we mentioned severe anemia can get us to that high output state, but I got to be honest, guys, it's a little less intuitive for me. Why don't we go over some other high output states that can increase flow? So let's think about all of our patients with end-stage renal disease who have an AV fistula for dialysis. That's something that can actually cause high pulmonary pressures also. Particularly fistulas that have been present for many years, not usually a brand new one that's just within the last year or two, and particularly AV fistulas that are large in size, which tend to be ones above the elbow as opposed to in the forearm, because they just have the potential to grow bigger and have more, you know, shunting through that fistula. Ah, I have seen so many patients with elevated pulmonary pressures or on dialysis, and it's hard, you know, because and so really these patients have so many reasons to have pulmonary hypertension. They've got chronic anemia. They've got left-sided heart disease. How do we know that the fistula is the culprit? What we'll do in the cath lab is we'll actually close down the fistula and see what happens to the cardiac output and the pulmonary pressures. And sometimes they won't change. Sometimes they'll drop. And if they drop significantly to a non-pathologic state, 
then we'll start investigating the actual flow through the fistula. Yeah, and some studies have even shown that these patients' PASPs then go down after a kidney transplant when the fistulas are closed. Ah, that is eye-opening. You know, I hadn't really considered fistulas messing up the flow that much to contribute to pulmonary hypertension. And again, humbling to think that these patients just have so many other reasons to develop pH. The reality, though, is that echocardiographic pulmonary hypertension is an ominous finding. Those patients have significantly increased mortality um, as compared to patients who have normal uh, echocardiography. Yeah, these patients can be so sick. And there's one other group of patients whose physiology can cause high pulmonary pressures, and that's patients with cirrhosis. And then you realize they have advanced liver disease and cirrhosis, and they've had a variceal bleed chronically, and they have high output physiology from a low SVR state because they have cirrhosis and they're anemic. And you examine them and they have normal low jugular venous pressure and they have bounding arterial pulses. And you realize this, this patient has a high cardiac output physiology secondary to underlying chronic conditions. And the pulmonary hypertension is a secondary manifestation of what we already know and does not represent any new physiology or information. That's such a good example. I I mean, I feel like I've taken care of this exact patient on the wards before. Yeah, definitely. And the physiology in these patients is super interesting and really complex. Yes, there can be this high output state, but there's also this other bucket at play, increased resistance. These patients can also develop something called portopulmonary hypertension, which causes remodeling that increases resistance. So patients with cirrhosis can have either elevated resistance or high flow or even both playing a role. Ah, Another humbling reminder that patients don't fit into these nice, neat uh, physiologic insult buckets and multiple things can be at play. Okay, so let's sum up Pearl 3, which really is a physiological framework of what exactly leads to elevated pulmonary artery pressures. Uh, Let's remember that garden hose analogy. So is there a high flow state? Is there high vascular resistance? Or are the left atrial pressures elevated? Anna, you know, I got to agree with you. Uh, Boiling this down to these three physiologic insults that can cause high pulmonary pressures makes it much less intimidating and will probably help me triage a bit sooner what the appropriate workup might be. And that's exactly what we're going to cover in our next couple of pearls. So keep this framework handy. Okay, so we got our echo back. It's got this high pulmonary artery systolic pressure. Now, how do we use the echo to help us understand what our patient might have as their pathophys insult? So honestly, Shreya, the easiest thing to do is to rule out what's common, elevated left-sided filling pressures. So the first thing we should see if there's any signs on the echo that would point towards this. There are some obvious and very readily apparent clues that you might find, things like significant systolic dysfunction with a reduced ejection fraction or critical aortic stenosis or severe mitral regurgitation. Okay, I get that. If a patient has severe left-sided valvular disease or an EF of like 20%, especially if it's been around for a long time, there's a good chance that that is what is causing the elevated pulmonary pressures. Yeah, but sometimes it's not so in your face in the bottom impression of that echo and the findings of left-sided problems are a bit more subtle. 
Yeah. And for me, I feel like that mostly comes up with diastolic dysfunction. And that's when I start to feel like Sherlock Holmes, digging into the report, looking for clues. But honestly, I, I don't really know where to start. So Dr. Badia taught us a few clues for diastolic dysfunction, but we're going to break down two that can give us some insight, the left atrial size and the E to E prime ratio. So if the left atrium is moderately enlarged or bigger, so moderate or severely enlarged, then in the context of a patient having an elevated PASP or RBSP estimation on their echocardiogram, then our brains are immediately going towards suspecting left heart congestion. Let me try to understand this here. It sounds like the teaching point that is if you have chronic progressive dyspnea from pulmonary hypertension related to left heart congestion, basically cannot exist with a normal left atrial size. So that one's pretty easy to understand. And honestly, the left atrial size is a universally reported feature on echo reports. Yep. So after you see that large left atrium on the echo, the next thing we want to do is to peak at that E to E prime ratio. What that is looking at is a combination of the flow, the velocity of blood flow across the mitral valve in diastole relative to the velocity of the myocardial motion of the actual tissue around the mitral valve annulus. So if that went over your head the first time around, don't worry, me too. What helped me was to break down the top and bottom numbers of the ratio. So first off, what's the numerator E telling us? So the numerator E is really a measure of left-sided pressure. Higher pressures result in a greater velocity of blood passively flowing through the mitral valve. Even I got that one. Uh, Let's (laughs) go to the denominator E prime. What does that tell us? And so the tissue Doppler measures the stiffness. It sort of represents the compliance and the stiffness of the actual myocytes in the ventricle itself. And if the tissue Doppler is moving very slow because of a stiff left side of the heart, stiff myocardium, then that tissue Doppler velocity will be a low number. And we refer to that as the E prime. Okay, so putting it all together, a high E to E prime ratio is a signal for diastolic dysfunction. And putting that a little bit more into normal English, here is Dr. Schoenberg. So at the end of the day, I think of the E to E prime ratio as really representing how hard it is for the left atrium to fill the left ventricle. The higher the E to E prime ratio, the harder it is for the left atrium to fill the left ventricle during active filling. Okay, so at what E to E prime number should I start thinking this looks like diastolic dysfunction? And if you see an E to E prime that's greater than 10 in the context of an estimated elevated uh, pulmonary pressure, then our brain is going to left heart filling pressures are high. I know that I've scrolled past E to E prime. I don't even want to count how many times on the echo report. (laughs) But on top of that, it's also rarely mentioned in the interpretation. So this is a really good nugget to keep in my back pocket. So true. This is starting to feel like a Rosetta Stone course for the echo, but honestly, I'm loving it. So to summarize Pearl 4, when looking at an echo to better characterize pulmonary hypertension, we can start with looking for evidence of elevated left-sided filling pressures, like bad aortic stenosis or severe mitral regurge. Yeah, exactly. And then diastolic dysfunction is where things get a bit tricky, but this is where we have to do our homework. Take a look at the reported LA size and the EDE prime ratio. And if it's greater than 10 to 12, we're thinking left-sided heart disease. 
And if you do determine that elevated left-sided filling pressures is the physiologic insult leading to your patient's pulmonary hypertension, well, the treatment is treating their left-sided heart disease. And you might Ta-da. not need exactly you might not need to do all the workup that we're going to talk about in Pro 5. Exactly. And then on the flip side, if you don't see those signs of elevated left-sided filling pressures, then it might be time to call one of your friendly consultants. I would start there and say, look, the RVSP is high, patient's short of breath, left atrial size is normal or only mildly enlarged, and that E to E prime is normal or low, that ratio less than 10 or less than eight. If that's the case, then your spidey sense should be alerted already. And I would say, call me. It's time for me to get involved with this patient because the likelihood that the patient's pulmonary hypertension is from a high pulmonary vascular resistance is already much higher because we've we've made some progress in lowering the chances that this pulmonary hypertension is coming from the left side of the heart. Okay, so we've covered all things about the echo and the left side of the heart. When we're thinking about the other bucket, high pulmonary vascular resistance, is there anything on the echo that can point us to high resistance? Yeah, Shreya. So there are some clues on the echo that can point to high resistance, one of them being septal flattening during systole. Okay, do tell more. (laughs) Okay, so let me translate. So interventricular septal flattening in systole on the echo report is telling us that the RV is seeing a high afterload from high pulmonary vascular resistance. So if you see that septal flattening in systole, sometimes described as that D-shaped septum in the parasternal short axis of the echocardiogram, think to yourself, this isn't just pulmonary hypertension. Think this is a high pulmonary vascular resistance, which is much more specific and potentially much more ominous. And it's literally a, a sort of a dyssynchrony on the order of milliseconds of the contractility of the RV and the LV because of that high afterload against the right ventricle that it has to face that leads to that appearance of septal flattening in systole. Yeah, I have definitely heard the D sign thrown around a lot in the ED or the CCU, but good to know that it means the pressure and afterload in the pulmonary system is so much that it basically causes the RV and LV to be out of sync. And it actually changes the geometry a little bit. Yeah, and there's a cool physiologic correlation there. We see the exact same thing happen in a massive pulmonary embolism that causes right ventricular strain. We see the septal flattening in those cases as well. So if we're worried about high vascular resistance, I'm curious how our experts start thinking about this. I would say if you have an echocardiogram that is leaning you towards a high pulmonary vascular resistance, so in other words, like you just said, left atrial size is normal, E to E prime is low, there's septal flattening and systole, then we're going down that road of the evaluation. So I'm thinking now I can go to the WHO groups. What are the diagnoses in the WHO groups that would fit that physiology? So when we're thinking there's increased resistance, we're thinking of WHO group one, which includes pulmonary arterial hypertension. WH group three, which includes a lot of the chronic lung diseases and chronic hypoxemia. And WH group four, which is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF. And just to preface, this next part is going to just be the beginnings of a workup. It is by no means exhaustive for these patients. Uh, We're also going to be going through them in terms of the WHO groups. So if we start at the top, who group one, pulmonary arterial hypertension, 
I'm asking, do they have a family history of pulmonary arterial hypertension because of the hereditary form, which is, by the way, autosomal dominant in inheritance? There's a higher penetrance in female. So daughters may manifest disease more than sons. And there's also genetic anticipation, which means that the younger generation will manifest the disease earlier and sometimes in a more severe way than parents. So first degree relative family history is what's important. And if you elicit that, then we refer to genetic counseling and genetic testing. So in addition to asking about family history, we're going to need to ask about symptoms related to a ton of different rheumatological diseases. Uh, So for example, we're going to ask about inflammatory joint pain, dry eyes or mouths, fingers turning white in the cold, difficult to control acid reflux even, since that could be a sign of scleroderma. Asking this history, and yes, checking an ANA, is probably a good start for the rheumatologic workup. And then I'm also asking about exposures to HIV because of HIV-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension, so any known history or possible cause. But we're testing everybody in their new evaluation. The other big thing that we don't think about a lot is toxin exposure. And in particular, one of the most common toxin exposures that I have actually seen is methamphetamine. And in fact, I have learned as an internist and cardiologist that if I don't specifically ask, if I only say, do you, do you smoke? Do you use IV drugs? Do you use cocaine? I will miss the, the history of methamphetamine. So I've learned to be better about that history. Guilty. I have definitely done one of those cursory social histories and not asked about methamphetamine or had it on my radar as a link to pulmonary hypertension. From a toxin exposure, I would also highlight the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, desatinib, which is Sprycell is the brand. So our oncology colleagues use this quite a bit. Um, And that can actually be a cause of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so I just want to raise that awareness to connect those dots as we're going through the med lists and our patients. And of course, we can't forget about one more very common and humbling cause of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So those are some of the testing that I'm having in my mind for WHO group one pulmonary arterial hypertension. Remembering that 40% or so of patients with WHO group one pulmonary arterial hypertension are currently ultimately classified as idiopathic, which is not satisfying to any of us as internists. Not satisfying indeed. So switching gears to WHO group three, I want to know if these patients might have underlying lung disease. So here I am scrolling through prior imaging, especially for prior CTs that may point towards ILD or longstanding emphysema. And then it's also helpful to look and see if any PFTs have been done. Pay close attention to the diffusion capacity, that DLCO. If your DLCO is markedly reduced in the context of otherwise relatively normal PFTs, that's actually a very important marker of pulmonary vascular disease. It could be PAH or another cause. And so that's just a quick pearl of something as internists to keep an eye out for. And then another thing in group three that's super common is OSA. So really all of these patients should be getting a sleep study. And finally, we have our WHO group four. I always say patients do not have PAH until they've had a VQ scan to rule out chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. The VQ scan has a sensitivity that's greater than 95% um, to rule out pulmonary, uh, to rule out CTEF. Um, and the hemodynamics and the symptoms and the echocardiogram and the physical exam 
of CTEF can often look so similar, nearly identical to pulmonary arterial hypertension that we need that additional layer of imaging to rule that out. Okay. So one thing I found really interesting about CTEF, and I think might be a common misconception, is that patients don't actually need to have a prior history of venous thromboembolism to present with new pulmonary hypertension. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like just like all around, I don't think about CTEF enough. And I got to say, guys, a solid pulmonary hypertension workup involves so much. I know. Uh, But thank goodness generalists are definitely not expected to complete all of this workup, but it is helpful to at least get a head start. So you're seeing those signs, send off the blood work, get order the VQ scan while you're getting the referral underway. You're calling the consult or you're, you're sending them as an outpatient. But starting with that is very valuable and can help get the ball rolling. Yeah. And to be honest, some of our reviewers had mixed recommendations about this. Uh, And maybe a good rule of thumb is if you're going to order a VQ scan, just make sure that you do it at a place where radiologists read VQ scans often. Okay, guys, I'm going to do my best to summarize all of this here. So the initial basic workup for suspected pulmonary hypertension related to increased pulmonary vascular resistance really starts with a thorough history, of course, but in particular, a thorough rheumatologic history and an exposure history. And being explicit here, Uh, that's methamphetamine inhalation, or if they're a cancer patient, if they've been exposed to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And there's some studies that you're going to think about as well. So PFTs, and if you are at an institution that has a lot of comfort with these, a VQ scan to start the evaluation for CTEF. And lastly, I have a low threshold to order that sleep study. It is so, so common. And don't forget about the echo, right? That is where this whole thing started. Oh man, that was a deep, deep dive into the world of pulmonary hypertension. Yep, and really breaking down what that echo is telling us. And hopefully everyone feels a bit more empowered to reach out for help sooner. I know I definitely feel a bit more empowered. So thank you, Hannah, for that. We have a serious referral problem where unfortunately people sit on bad echoes and and it's not recognized early enough. So it is, I, I would always rather someone refer someone early and we say, don't worry about it, than someone refer late and we go... Ooh, crap. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team or colleagues. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet us and leave a comment on our website page, on Instagram, or on Facebook. Thank you to our peer reviewer, Dr. Timothy Fernandez and Dr. Cyrus Koldani for peer reviewing. And thank you to Dr. Spatia for audio editing, as well as Dr. Cabo Wang for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing your feedback. So email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.